Hello, everyone. I am Allison Convisar, Private Wealth Client Associate. I'd like to welcome you to our True Love Wealth Management Update End of 2023 edition. With me today, I have Amir Chulov, Partner and Senior PIM Portfolio Manager, Matt Richards, Partner, Private Wealth Management Advisor, Certified Financial Planner, and Mike Davern, Registered Portfolio Associate. Please enjoy today's episode. Thank you, Allie. Amir, I want to jump right into it here. Um, considering the last 18 months of tight monetary policy from our Federal Reserve, where do you see the U.S. macro outlook going forward? I appreciate it being direct, Mike. Uh, let's just get right into it. Uh, gaining insight on the unusual combination of ongoing U.S. economic growth and tightening monetary policy requires an encompassing perspective. And we increasingly see U.S. industrial policy as a driving factor on the supply side of the economy. For example, the industrial policy spending in billions of dollars as opposed to the percentages in GDP uh, through the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act may triple over the next decade to here for unseen levels. A surge in technology-related planned spending may be the most visible sign of the fiscal impulse so far. At this point, and based on the scale of that investment, if the policy spending succeeds, and, and I'm a little bit optimistic that it may, the economy could embark on another period of accelerating productivity in the United States like we had in the late 90s, which consequently lifts the GDP growth and at the same time keeps inflation in check. Conversely, a policy failure could culminate with sliding productivity, deaccelerating real GDP growth, rising inflation, and soaring fiscal waste in an already heavily indebted economy. And that's why I stand against that economic nationalism uh, that is kind of being promoted by some political circles. Consumer spending is at 66% of US GDP, but is extremely stable and almost exclusively driven by employment and wages. Consequently, a sudden drop in personal consumption has never precipitated a recession. Economic forecasters spend a large amount of time focusing on minor, minor influences on um, consumer spending, such as maybe student loan payments or pandemic saving balances dropping, which is not a main factor for indication of a recession. You know, let's, let's remember, since Second World War, recession has been caused by the Fed tightening monetary policy, which causes long-term interest rates to increase, resulting in large reduction in business investment. In the past 11 post-World War, World War II recessions, business investment drop, and on top of it, this time, bank lending is restricted and drying up, not just for businesses, but for housing and auto loans. However, right now, the U.S. has a shortage of housing with inventory of new and existing homes for sale at all-time low. The shortage is partially due to hangover effects from the housing crash, and partially due to expectations that millennials would not live the same lives of their parents. There is also a shortage of new autos for sale. It used to be a result of auto chip production disruptions, and it's now a result of current union strikes. These shortages are supporting the housing and auto sectors at this moment. And the share of mortgages that are floating rate has dropped from 20% before the financial crisis to 6% now, cushioning the impact of rising uh, 
rates on average consumers. In addition, spending related to ARPA, IRA, CHIPS Act, infrastructure bill is supposed to uh, be about construction and fixing inv uh, investment, which is preventing layoffs, getting all that infrastructure if the policy is done right. While the labor market is being supported at this moment by shortage of workers that developed during the pandemic. Consequently, we continue to forecast that the US economy either has a bumpy soft landing or a mild recession, which would then be a double recession if we count that first two quarters of the last year were negative quarters and really acted as a recession. Uh, conversely, we do forecast that Eurozone will enter a recession in the next year, with Germany already in recession with a slight negative growth already. Now, given that macro backdrop and, and knowing since the great financial crisis of 2008, the interest rate regime was accommodative, keeping rates at historical lows. Bonds did not perform well in the last few years. Is there now a shift in outlook? Well, with 550 basis points of rate hikes in the rearview mirror, uh, Federal Reserve has made some progress in curbing U.S. inflation. However, reducing core inflation remains a challenge, and many developed market central banks have recently taken a more hawkish tone. The European Central Bank and the Bank of England may have more work to do, and it may be proving politically harder to do it. This rapid cycle of rate hikes has left yield curves extremely inverted, time-wise. Yield curves don't stay inverted forever. This is the reason for us to believe that bond outlook may have improved. So how people position bonds in portfolios depends on which one of the three possible outcomes they feel is the most likely one to play out. Uh, first outlook would be inflation remains above. You know, they're, they're starting to call it higher for longer. Um, and I if this is a, a likelihood, then real GDP growth declines, but nominal GDP growth remains high. Interest rates remain elevated or even move higher. And credit spreads widen. That would kind of be like a repeat of the year we just had. We do think that interest rates are at or near their peaks at the Fed and the European Central Bank, but we do not expect them to be cut soon. We believe the Fed will look to maintain a real policy rate of 1% to 2%, and they're telling us that, and we think U.S. core inflation will end the year between 35 and 4%. Supply shocks and higher commodity prices have been largely responsible for the price increases we have seen thus far. But wage growth and service inflation have now the potential to be much stickier. Mopping up the last bits of excess inflation often takes longer than clearing the more transitory drivers. We also believe long-term structural forces such as changing demographics, you know, talking about cost of people getting older, uh, deglobalization, cost of trade changing and going up, and decarbonization, which is going to have a huge cost to switch, are likely to make inflation stickier than we have become used to over the last 20 years. Shorter duration assets could have an important role to play in this higher for longer rate environment. Short duration credit offers investors an advantage of less exposure to volatile interest rates while giving up very little yield right now to long bonds. 
just like this year. While nominal growth would remain positive in this scenario, it would be lower than it was when inflation was at its peak. Corporate, corporate profits may hold up relatively well, but margins and cash flows are likely to be squeezed by rising costs, including interest and wage costs, potentially widening credit spreads and rising volatility and re default risk. Therefore, having a flexible approach to fixed income allocations could for many play an important role in this environment. Having access to the broadest possible range of markets can be an advantage when it comes to diversifying exposures and finding the optimal trade-off between yield and risk. Having the flexibility to respond to evolving economic data and investor sentiment can make it easier to navigate through a volatile environment. I agree, Matt. But what are the chances that we have another year just like this one? I feel the next two scenarios may be more likely. So what is this second scenario? Well, the second one would be the inflation stabilizes. Uh, kind of what, what, what Fed would expect, like a soft landing. Uh, in that scenario, nominal GDP growth declines, but really GDP growth stabilizes. Interest rates level. Credit spreads would stabilize. This is the most benign or soft landing scenario where tighter monetary and financial conditions cut inflation without introducing a major slowdown or a recession. Markets bring forward their expectations for the rate cuts, lowering and flattening government yield curves. Bond investors would benefit from declining yields. Corporate profits are likely to decline along with nominal growth, but positive real growth would help support demand and relief would also come from stabilizing interest rates and other costs, helping to sustain margins, cash flow, and debt repayments. This environment would be positive for credit, but the flexibility to toggle between high yield investment grade and other fixed income sectors could help optimize the trade-off between yield and risk that Matt was talking about and as, credits, as these credit spreads stabilize. Shelter inflation is near its peak. Goods have improved, while core services still remain a little bit sticky. We do think that interest rates are at or near their peaks at the Fed and European Central Bank. But we do not expect them to be cut soon. Amir, to that point, corporations have managed with higher rates and rising costs much better than we anticipated. However, the nominal growth set to decline and minimal relief from high rates in sight, profit margins would continue to be squeezed and credit conditions could tighten with spreads eventually stabilizing in, the, in this environment. Because of that, there may be a role for higher quality credit being used. And it does appear the fund flows are already moving in that direction. So the last possible scenario then is recession. You're right, Mike. It, it's when inflation falls back. But I rather think the Fed may opt for a word slowdown rather than recession. In that scenario, real and nominal GDP growth slows uh, or becomes recessionary. Interest rates are cut, hopefully, and credit spreads widen. In this scenario, the cumulative lagged effects of rapid monetary tightening begin to bite hard into economic growth. Unemployment rises, demand falls. Bond investors would benefit from declining yields as markets bring their expectations for rate cuts forward. Corporate profits, margins, and cash flows are likely to be squeezed, and default risk would rise meaningfully. Disparities in issuer quality should become apparent, in contrast to trends in place since the global financial crisis, we believe that monetary policy will be less forgiving, meaning not coming to the rescue just as easily as before. 
reinforcing the importance of credit research and quality for bond investors. So Amir, to me that sounds like long duration and defensiveness could be a successful strategy in this environment. Still having the flexibility to respond nimbly to evolving economic data and investor sentiment across a wide range of fixed income asset classes can make it easier to navigate through the volatility and to take advantage of market dislocations and value opportunities. So some barbell on bonds would still be a positive. Yes, Matt, you're quite right. In the end, some leading indicators still point to a possibility of a recession. So the last outcome is kind of likely with some chance of a soft landing, as weather forecasters would say. I think an obvious question a listener may ask here is, how would these three outcomes that we just discussed be changed or influenced by these newly increased geopolitical risks? We talked about and wrote about this subject extensively over the last eight years. So there's no need to spend a lot of time on this. However, given all these horrific events that developed in Israel, Gaza, Ukraine, before that, um, we have to mention it and we have to be um, obviously careful with how these geopolitical forces and risks uh, will be influencing people's portfolios in the future. Um, what we talked extensively about before is that the world is slowly getting to the point where the globalization stage uh, is set and we're done uh, with the stage we were at before. Uh, we were talking about world where nation states that are not just United States are reaching to become uh, regional powers or global powers in some instances and they're uh, setting up their spheres of influence and alliances that would uh, scale them to the level of reaching a balance in the world, which is fine. And I think it, it, it seems obvious that United States foreign policy was leaning for many years now into the direction of um, pulling from being that super cop for the world and having some other forces uh, fill in some of the vacuum and create a new balance which would be less costly but still responsible and honoring the post-World War uh, system of, for economics and, and, and world stability. Uh, however, uh, what's becoming obvious now is that we do have these new forces becoming powers and this includes Iran and India and China and Russia and Europe on its own. Uh, however, it, it's m becoming m more obvious uh, now that it's basically a break of two philosophies. On one side, you have possibly development of a block that stands behind, behind the rules-based system, democracy and freedom as the uh, 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 a system to protect and have the world move forward. And on the other side, you have these powers that are based on totalitarianism and um, 
centralized control um, that is trying to set up uh, a philosophical, let's call it, platform that is challenging the, the way of thinking that democracy and cap uh, capitalism are the only way to move the world forward, okay? Uh, I don't know how far that's going to get them, but it seems like these forces are aligning with each other. Uh, on on the on the first side, the first side, of, you know, including America and its allies, um, it, 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 the philosophy can can easily get that block to continue to trade uh, openly with each other and protect each other's economy together uh, and protect protect security together. I don't really think that the other side, if we want to call it that, has so much in common and same to align them closer together than there already are. It would, it would take a lot to get them fully aligned together. Um, with what's going on currently, it is, um, it, 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 let's call it a definition of lines and definition of borders uh, and a fight more than anything for alliances of these neutral countries. So let's call them neutral. Some people will call them non-aligned, but I, I really don't want to use a term that represented a, a block and movement during the Cold War, and I don't think the same word should be used now, so let's call them just neutral. Uh, these neutral countries, uh, which is a great position to be in, that's, that's the reason why there's a lot of countries that are declaring to be neutral, because they're trying to get something out of each side. Uh, be it economically or security-wise or uh, growth-wise or power-wise, um, they're looking for benefits from being neutral and negotiating on both sides. Some of them will, over time, get influenced and pushed um, to pick a side. And that's going to happen over shortly after what's going on with the uh, wars uh, that are opening on different, uh, in different spheres, defining the lines and allies. And I think that's just the phase we're in right now. What's necessary for, I think, any investor is to look at their portfolios, look at the planning that they do for how to position where their investments are, is to take the, all those risks in account in how they allocate uh, their portfolio. Some people may choose to be just US-centric fully and not do much investing outside of the world, uh, outside of the United States border, but they have to keep in mind that a lot of the stocks they own uh, in the companies that are U.S. companies are basically global stocks. Those companies depend for half of their earnings or, or, or about that uh, from earnings they make in other countries. So all of that has to come in into some consideration and the international weight and emerging weight of these portfolios um, should take um, all of these factors uh, seriously and, and plan accordingly. Finally, I want to end on a subject I've been very interested in since joining the team, and that is the wealth management industry overall. Something I've seen studies on recently is the four stages of retirement. Matt, could you talk about the four stages of retirement for me? Thanks, Mike. Ultimately, I do feel it boils down to four separate phases. First being the honeymoon phase, the transition into retirement and out of the workforce. For some, it might be slow. and others, it might be a clean break where they can stop right away. 
The second decision is really the big decision phase where we talk about choosing on where you want to live and how you want to live. You know, whether you want to downsize your current home and live in a patio home um, or you want to be a snowbird and live in multiple states depending on the weather. Um, you also make a decision at that point, do you drive two cars? Do you drive one car? What makes most sense for your family? Uh, third, we talk about navigating longe the longevity phase. Uh, here you begin to experience greater longevity risks, meaning that your health, mobility, and cognitive abilities will not be what they once were. Simply put, your needs will be greater, but your resources may be smaller. Uh, the fourth phase really is the solo journey phase. This is a tough one. This is where one may experience the loss of a significant other and wonder what happens next. It is a tough conversation, but it's a necessary conversation. And sometimes it does involve more than just the individual, but the rest of their family to be with them. So looking at these four phases, I'd like to spend a few minutes and expand on the first one, the honeymoon phase. As a CFP and retirement planner, this is where I'm seeing individuals have the most difficulty. Statistics show 66% of retirees struggle here. Think about it. Starting from when they were a little kid, for the last 50 to 60 years, they've had the same routine. They wake up, get dressed, eat breakfast, go to school or work, come home, eat dinner, go to bed, and repeat. Day in and day out, they've had the same thing. This is what makes it so difficult for many, to ha many people ha to have a clean break and completely exit their careers. Because of this, individuals decide to either work part-time or even come back to the company as some sort of consultant. But on top of the habits, their career typically offers some sort of identity or a sense of purpose or a feeling of accomplishment that they feel that they will lose if they're no longer there. Uh, I tend to joke with my father-in-law here sometimes where he started a business young in his career and we often joke that that business was actually his fourth baby that he never talks about. Um, but all kidding aside, you have to be open to new relationships. Replacing old work relationships with someone new is something that you're going to have to go forward with. Depending on the hobbies you like, whether it's golfing, cooking, boating, or working with some charitable organizations at that point. Uh, lastly, it, this one has to do with how do you spend your money in retirement. Retirees really have a tough time with this one because they've worked hard through their entire life trying to save for retirement, but now, how do you spend it? Here's where I see them become nervous about overspending and questioning, do they have enough money to do this? Uh, will they outlive their assets? For the longest time, they're used to collecting a paycheck bi-weekly, and all of a sudden, it stops. However, it doesn't need to stop, it just changes. What used to come from their employer just needs to be replaced with a paycheck from their investment portfolios. That being said, retirees can have a smoother transition and relieve the anxiety by having a plan. Ask yourself, how do you plan to spend your time? What are your hobbies? What activities will fill your day? And set some sort of long-term or short-term goal. Moving towards a goal can provide a sense of purpose and control in your new routine. At this point, goals just may have changed. Instead of being career-driven, maybe it's a health and fitness goal, a travel goal, or even some family goal. But give yourself time. It's okay to take time. Habits do not change overnight. And remember, you've had the same routine for the last 60 years. So to sum it up, I want to stress the importance of making your plan early. Don't wait until the very end. 
A lot of time, thought, and care goes into the decision like this. You shouldn't feel you have to make it on your own. We can help guide and share our experiences we've had with other families. Being work optional and having that freedom doesn't mean you have to quit completely. The next phase of life should be exciting. And that's the feeling I want to instill into my clients as we're making their plans together. Thank you so much, Matt and Amir, for, for that coverage on markets and the wealth management industry. Um, and thank you for all the clients out there listening to this edition of True Love Wealth Management Updates, uh, our end of 2023 edition, and, and see you guys in 2024. Investment products and services are offered through Wells Fargo Advisors Financial Network, LLC, WFAFN, member SIPC. Jewel of Wealth Management is a separate entity from WFAFN. Sourced information for the wealth management industry discussion was from Hartford Funds using MIT Age Lab.